as long as there have been human beings in the world, then people have been looking for happiness, looking for different ways that they think will bring them happiness. So we often tend to look to wise people, sages, to guide us and instruct us in how to find some true lasting happiness in life. They say even in the Deva realms, the discussions on where true happiness lies continue. So in the time of the Buddha, there was the occasion when the Devas sent a representative to meet the Buddha and ask him, what are the highest blessings in life? Those blessings, that which is truly auspicious, which will help to us to achieve happiness and success as we wish. Even the Devas had that question, which was the cause for the Buddha teaching the Mangala Sutta, discourse on the higher blessings, that which is auspicious, truly beneficial, which if you read it, it uh, gives very practical guidelines as to how to practice Dhamma in daily life, whether a bhikkhu or a lay person. Many very simple and direct teachings to be reflected on and can be used as guidelines day-to-day -day living. The Buddha talked about the importance of fulfilling our responsibilities to family, not to neglect our family, so our parents or any other people who have raised us, to appreciate what they've done for us, to look after them just as they've looked after us, to be aware of our responsibilities to the wider society and environment around us, to help others, help to maintain the environment, good environment to live in. And obviously to dedicate ourselves to spiritual practice. Developing morality, 
virtue in our behavior and our conduct and pursuing meditation and developing wisdom to truly penetrate and understand the Dhamma to free our minds from greed, anger and delusion. The highest blessings are all aspects of that. Factors supporting that pursuit of happiness that we all have and that even devas have. They say the devas prior to asking the Buddha had been contemplating their fate Meaning that even though human beings who have made much good karma might be reborn in the heaven realms, they're also aware that in those heaven realms there's not so much opportunity to make further good karma. It's more like they're using up the old good karma that brought them to the rebirth in the heaven realm, whether a minor deva or a deva with great parami, still tend to be using up the old merit, the old good karma that brought them to heaven, heavenly rebirth. And when that karma is exhausted, then to be reborn in another realm Maybe as a human, but maybe not. Maybe in a lower realm. So the devas still have their causes for worry, concern about the future, where real happiness lies, some kind of lasting happiness. Also the understanding that even though a human being has a coarser, kind of body, physical body, which is open to both pleasure and pain, far more diverse experience than the, in a deva realm. They actually have more opportunity to develop good karma. They can listen to dhamma, practice the dhamma, develop precepts, perform beneficial actions, dana, sila and embawana, train themselves in samatha and in insight. So both humans and devas have the same doubt and where does real happiness lie? So it's that question that led to the Buddha teaching the Mangala Sutta that we chant regularly, particularly on the full moon and new moon days. And just reminding us that it's you know, it's a blessing to associate with the wise. Fellow practitioners, ideally enlightened practitioners, those who've really understood the path to the end of suffering and can share it with us who conduct themselves according to the path. And to value wise people, 
spend time with them, listen to them, take their advice, put their advice into practice, and to be wary of unwise people, people who are not practicing Dhamma, who do not yet value the practice of Dhamma perhaps. doesn't mean to say we have to choose all the time. That's not always possible. Sometimes life brings us into contact with many different kinds of people. But to know the danger or the disadvantages when we associate with those who do not practice the path or do not, are not aware of the path, if we're not careful and consider wisely what they say or the example they give, then they can lead us astray to create the causes for more suffering without realizing. Whereas a truly wise person will always encourage us in the right direction to do that which is beneficial for ourselves and for others and encourage us to give up ways and actions that will cause us suffering. So just the first line of this teaching is already like a gold mine of good advice that we can use throughout our whole life. It's the reason many of us come into the robes is to associate with fellow Dhamma practitioners and particularly to meet teachers who can guide us through their example and their words in the practice of meditation, sila samadhi panya, to the very highest levels can help shed light onto the truth about this world about this body and mind where we alone may not yet have full understanding. We might still be in the dark and their wisdom can shine the light. You know, another way of putting it is they can save us a lot of time by giving us good advice at the right time in the right way. We can use that advice to avoid a lot of suffering in life and in our practice. So when we remember Lumpur Cha, at this time of year we have the annual memorial day at Wat Nong Ba Phong in Thailand. We're remembering the person and the qualities of that person and then also the Dhamma of that person with gratitude, appreciation and you know, just a reflection on our good fortune to have come into contact with such a skilled teacher of Sangha and laity. And we're lucky that his teachings are still around in books and audio and translated into the language that we're used to.
the ways of practice, the monastic training and form is still available to us. So this is a blessing. And we have places to practice. In the second line of that teaching in Patirupa Desawa so cha. Having the blessing of a good place to live and practice. So say living here in this country where there's no war, no extreme climatic conditions, very rarely are there earthquakes or flooding or fire, although these things do happen, it's very rare. There's no war or conflict in the society. So it's a relatively peaceful place to practice Dhamma. The Buddhist teachings are not banned or we're not disadvantaged through our faith in the Buddhist teachings and our practice. We can practice freely. And this is our good fortune to live in a place where the Buddhist teachings are available and we can hear and practice them. On and on that sutta is a, it's a recollection and a opening up, reminding us of what is supportive in our life. And sometimes we get caught up into states of suffering we forget this. We've actually already achieved much good fortune through our own efforts. It's another one of the highest blessings in that sutta is to have made merit in the past, to have developed good karma from the past. And obviously to come and practice in a monastery, just to hear about a monastery and the teachings and then to have the opportunity to actually come and stay and practice is obviously the fruits of past good karma. Causes maybe in this life, maybe even in previous lives. We've pra perhaps practiced meditation before listened to Dhamma before, associated with Sangha before. So this life, when the chance arises, we're drawn to take that opportunity to continue with the practice. And we have some, already some accumulated skills which help. We're not so restless that we can't stay in the monastery or sit down to meditate. We have some faith which hopefully gives rise to some joy and happiness at being able to practice and then through deepening our meditation, developing mindfulness, contemplating the teachings gives rise to more peace, more understanding. But this is building on perhaps what we have done before Almost certainly all of us have practiced at different times in the past, whether for short periods or longer periods. And it all builds and has a cumulative effect on the mind. 
You know, the more we put effort into the practice, even if it's only for a temporary period, and then have to go back to the world and work and get involved with more worldly activities. But each period of practice is supporting further periods of practice, supporting further the further arising of skillful states of mind, mindfulness, wisdom, virtues. And little by little they become more established in our jitta, our mind. So it's never a waste to practice, you know, even if one's only got a day or two to spare to come and stay in the monastery, can still have a very profound effect on our lives. And then when all those moments of practice join together, it can have very, very good effect on our lives, on our minds. Listening to Dhamma is a blessing to be able to hear Dhamma. Nowadays we have so many different kinds of media. We have internet, and CDs and MP3s and books and TV. So the Dhamma is available and we also can come to places like this and listen to Dhamma and discuss Dhamma, share our experiences build up more understanding. This is a blessing. If we could never find anyone to talk Dhamma with, then probably feel very stuck, as if nobody really can't relate to anyone else in the world. But we're fortunate that there are still many Dhamma practitioners around and we can meet with them, discuss Dhamma, hear Dhamma, so the Buddha reminded us in his sutta, in his, in his teachings in general, of the path of practice, the different things that are important. It's up to us to make use of these teachings, to remind ourselves of them. Part of the practice of mindfulness is to remind ourselves of Dhamma. And that can be different kinds of Dhamma for different situations. So just reminding ourselves of our precepts, whether it's five, eight, ten, two hundred and twenty-seven precepts. In different situations, reminding ourselves of what is right speech, right action, to help guide our decision-making and our behavior in daily life. We can remind ourselves of the meditation objects that we're developing, the breath or the body or loving-kindness, the contemplation of anicca, dukkha, anatta. It's always the establishment of mindfulness, recollecting, remembering, the meditation object is you know, it's over and over again. We're doing that through our day, through our practice, whether it's one period of sitting or walking meditation or throughout, throughout the whole day. 
And we keep coming back to the present moment, reminding ourselves of of the Dhamma, of whatever our duty is at that moment. So if we're just quietly meditating on our own, then maybe just reminding ourselves of our object, to hold the mind in the present moment, to let go of the habit of endless proliferation and going round in circles with our thoughts. Sometimes it's just reminding ourselves of the basic meditation object to calm the mind, concentrate the mind, to let go of every everything else, all the hindrances. Other times we remember to contemplate. So we're remembering Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta as themes to recognize in our experience, to watch, to learn. Just as we train in calming the mind through developing a meditation object, we also have to train in wisdom. Sometimes it's as simple as just remembering that things are impermanent. To notice it, remember the impermanence of a thought, of a perception, a memory, some sense contact arising, passing away, or a feeling, and so on. Just reminding ourselves that it's a nature, rather than getting caught up into it. Living in a monastery where we have a lot of quiet, peace and quiet, and free time, it's up to us to use that time skillfully to keep bringing the mind back to the Dhamma. Obviously, we associate with other practitioners, we get uh, some good feedback, good examples. Others remind us of the Dhamma, and we talk about it and listen to Dhamma talks. But in the end, we have to do that for ourselves. We have to remind ourselves of the Dhamma keep bringing the mind back to it, not to give in to our old habits of thinking and reacting to things. So we also have to have much patience and diligent effort because we're going against old habits. It's not always easy. But if we see how the monastic form and the place supports the practice, we can see how oh, we have a great opportunity to contemplate the Dhamma, hear it, learn it, read it, but then to actually contemplate it through our day in different activities, different postures, just to notice the way things are keep coming back to one's own body and mind in the present moment. And just to notice it is impermanent, it rises and passes away, different feelings and thoughts, how the body changes through the day and through over many days. So notice the dukkha of this world. You know, when you're caught into boredom or restlessness, the mind tends to just fall into desire 
based on the sense objects, senses and their objects. We're always looking for some kind of sense stimulation or pleasure, sight, sounds, taste, smell, touch, ideas, concepts in the mind, memories. And just to notice the way the mind, because of its restlessness, the power of craving, always looking for something. If we're not bringing up mindfulness and wisely reflecting, it's never satisfied in the present moment, never content. Mind is always looking for something, the next thing to do, to experience, to have, to want. And that's dukkha. We can't always get the objects that the desire wants. You can't always get the pleasant things to see that your eyes wish to see. You can't always hear the pleasant things, that, the sounds that the ears want to hear, tastes and smell and touch, and so on. Our senses are often not working perfectly. Sometimes we have health issues, and then the objects of the senses are never quite coming in the way we want, when we want, how we want. And even when they arrive, they don't last. They pass and pass away, they arise and pass away, they change. So just to observe that on a daily basis, the, the suffering of having a human body seeking sense pleasure through the sense organs, seeking the objects of the senses, but never quite getting what we want. It's never enough. It's never quite right. That's dukkha. So that's, that's your starting point for seeking a way out of dukkha, seeking a, a higher happiness where the mind is free from craving and attachment. By practicing mindfulness, sense restraint, we start to expose the restlessness of the mind and its desire, wanting, not wanting, liking, disliking. We start to see that and we see the dukkha of it. We see the impermanence of the sense contact we have and the dukkha of it. Ultimately, the ownerless nature of it. You can't have everything that the mind wants. You can't keep it, control it. The pleasures of the senses that we're caught into, we can't own them and make the senses experience the pleasure that we want all day, all night, just as we want. Impossible. Even if we have a really good go at it, we'll never be successful. You know, there was one monk who once tried that. He had an obsession with certain kinds of food. So he thought maybe if he just keeps eating the same kind of food that he likes, he'll just get fed up with it and bored with it. And his desire will subside and he'll be free from desire. So he indulged and indulged. Obviously he was in a situation where he could get the food that he wanted. And he indulged and indulged and indulged. And he did get to the point where he was sick of that kind of food. But then, of course, 
a while later, a few days, a few weeks later, the desire started to return. He hadn't given up desire through insight, mindfulness and insight. It was more like just through trying to indulge and just seeing the, the dukkha of the sense contact, but going to boredom or fed up with the particular taste, but not really seeing it as an Nietzsche dukkha anatta. So he realized that just indulgence won't get us to the end of suffering and the end of desire. We have to be sharper than that and really see the true nature of it as an Nietzsche dukkha anatta. The desire is impermanent, it's not self, it's just a cause of suffering. The object is impermanent, not self. But the more we understand the process, the way desire is affecting the mind, the more we can establish mindfulness, contemplate and let go. Take a step back and detach from it. Subdue it, quieten it through the practice of mindfulness and then really uproot the ignorance and the attachment that underlies it, that feeds it through developing wisdom, contemplating. So this is the, the Dhamma practice that we have. We have a place to practice. We have fellow practitioners to support us. We have the Sangha, support of the Sangha, support of the lay community. This is our opportunity. We have to make use of the teachings that the Buddha gave us. Listen to them, reflect on them, put them into practice. And with enough patience and enough effort, we should all experience some benefit. Whether it's fast results or slow results, doesn't really matter. As long as we're practicing in the correct way, then sooner or later we'll experience more peace, more happiness, the thing that we all wish for. So I'll just give these words of encouragement to you tonight. You can do some chanting. <laughs> 